0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the ANF podcast. Again, this week it's just myself doing the introduction as Al is Skiving, and um, he uh, yeah he couldn't be bothered to turn up so i've no news for you i've absolutely no news for you um except to say that um this episode is another of our um feature focuses on ireland um and this week we spoke to well we didn't do it this week we did it quite a while ago now but um we wanted to release some after the summer. Um, But this week we spoke to Andrew Walker, who works for Bernardo's in Ireland. Um, Now, Bernardo's in Ireland is a separate organisation to the one in the UK and other parts of the world. I think there's quite a few of them scattered around. Um, But I was interested to speak to um, Andrew. um, And the reason for that was really to find out more about how adoption works in Ireland. And I have to say, mind blown. Um, I had assumed that um, it was very much the same as the UK. How wrong was I? We both were. N- neither of us um, were aware. Um, and I think that there's, um, historically, there's a lot of um, things that go on in Ireland around adoption, and that's potentially why it might be different today. But it was a really interesting chat with Andrew, as it is with all of our guests. Um, and um, he was, um, his his role at Bernardo's is um, more to do with kind of post-adoption he's a project leader for the post-adoption service um and he he did his research for us and he did his homework for us to find to be able to answer our questions essentially um but what was really interesting was the the kind of I guess the support that um adults receive now in Ireland um and how that all works as well as the kind of um the adoption process itself so definitely worth a listen. It was really interesting. Um, and it really kind of gave me some food for thought in terms of how adoption works in Ireland and, you know, really, really is, it's just a useful, useful listen. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, we have one more of the series of the Irish, um, focus, um, coming up, um, fairly soon, maybe in the next couple of weeks, actually. So, um, yeah, I hope you're enjoying them and I hope that, um, being back at school and all that sort of stuff is going well al and i will be back he's not really sky and well maybe he will, might be i don't know um but we will be back with the film podcast soon it's just been so manically busy for us both um this last couple of months um so yeah we need to get on that and we need to bring bring back the bants as we say anyway um take care keep safe and we'll talk to you soon So um, today, for um continuing on with our Irish theme, and um, not an Irish accent this time, but we are joined by Andrew Walker, who um, is from Bernardo's Island. I was going to put your nickname on the end of it, but I thought I'd better not just in case, Andrew, because I wasn't sure if we should share that or not, but I just think it's funny. But welcome, yeah. welcome to the podcast, and thanks for coming along.
1: No bother at all. Hey, great to be here, guys. Hello.
0: And, uh, yeah. A great Scottish accent there. So,
1: yes, indeed, yeah. I've been here <laughs> uh, 21 years, I think, this year. And as um, I said, my kids take the mic because obviously if i'm talking to a scottish person all of a sudden i'm 10 times more <laughs> scottish so I, I hope your international uh listeners are able to understand as we kind of get into this so yeah uh, that's fine no problem if i don't understand joe i'll let you know uh, yeah, we do have a,
2: a peruvian listener so he's probably lost bless yeah, him i'd imagine so it's probably peruvian pete. pete yeah peruvian pete <laughs> So Central. anyway, um, like I said, there. I
0: mean, we've we've we're, we're kind of looking into different systems. We've looked at America. We've looked at mm-hmm. you know various different countries, and obviously, living in Ireland, I, I, specifically me, I'm very interested to find out more about the system. So, perhaps you can just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Bernardo's, mm-hmm. and then we'll, we'll start chatting. Really, okay,
1: yeah, good stuff. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I work for Bernardo's Post Adoption Service. Um, the Post Adoption service is been part of Bernardo's in ireland since the 70s um it has two two sides to it i suppose an adult adoption service and also a service for children and families um and i'll talk more i suppose in detail later about those two different sides uh, but the the adoption service um is very much a post adoption service so bernardo's uh, in ireland was never involved in arranging adoptions mm-hmm. um unlike bernardo's in the uk Um, And so it was always seen, I suppose, as being a a neutral or independent place Um, in the 70s. There would have been quite a lot of domestic adoption still in Ireland, uh, run by, you know, different um, both state and religious run agencies. And uh, Bernard's would have been seen as being a bit of an outsider, I suppose. So uh, we're kind of in a nice position in that we work with all sides of the adoption triangle. You know, we work with, um, you know, uh, birth mothers and birth family we work with uh, adoptive parents and we work with adopted children teens and adults
2: mm. okay. can i all right already you've you've fried my noodles right so <laughs> um, because i think that it's it's sort of being in my little england bubble you sort of you've have you don't necessarily look beyond your borders and we know that adoption happens everywhere but then actually we realise that it, cult, yeah. different cultures have such a different experience of adoption in some cultures it just doesn't exist but ireland has got mm. a really a really quite a specific history that kind of has the church woven into it and Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff. So could you sort of like give us a potted history of that. I don't want to put you on the spot. and I'm not expecting dates or, you know. (laughs) Can Uh, you just paint a picture of of the context?
1: Yeah, well, as Scott mentioned, uh, that's a dangerous question because my nickname in school that you mentioned was walkie-talkie because (laughs) I like to talk.
0: I absolutely love that.
1: I I like to talk. and, And this is an area quite close to my heart because... Um, as well as working for the post adoption service for many years I would have worked for a family tracing service for people who were raised in the industrial schools so the industrial mm. schools were large institutions um uh you know that would have had uh you know various commissions investigating the the um the way that they were run and the the abuses that happened in them so uh but one of the abuses that happened was separation from family and a uh, single you know, children born to single mothers being separated from family and from siblings, and so on. <clears throat> so, um, as you said, the kind of history and context of adoption in Ireland is kind of rooted in in the huge kind of Catholicism of the country, the importance of the church following the the break from Britain in the early 1900s, and um, the the role that the church uh, would have taken in. I suppose in civil society, in terms of you know social issues, um, you know they would have run the schools, they would yeah. have run the industrial schools, they would have run the hospitals, etc. So uh, adoption actually only came into Ireland in 1952. Um, however, there would have been adoption-like arrangements happening prior to that, and there would also have been um, international adoption. Uh, there was a scandal that would have broken in the 1990s about children who were sent from Ireland to America. In the forties mm. and fifties, um, mm. to be adopted at a time when adoption wasn't legal in Ireland. Uh, so, in the nineteen fifties, when adoption came in, um, a number of uh, uh, adoption agencies, I suppose, were already in operation, who had would have been involved in boarding boarding out of children, which was a bit like fostering. And mm-hmm. um, some would have been involved in, you know, adoptions to America. Um, And they would have then, you know, kind of continued on arranging um, adoptions, which grew steadily kind of through the 1950s and into the 1960s, um, kind of peaking in the early 1970s, uh, about 1,400 adoptions a year, there or thereabouts, um, and then starting to gradually fall in the 1970s um, as society changed, um, and particularly as a payment for single mothers um, became available. Um, that has started was certainly part of the mix in terms of the numbers starting to fall, uh, as well as kind of societal change. Really, um, mm. so the other f- story then uh, for adoption in Ireland is a uh, the, the large number of international adoptions that um, would have occurred, um, in some ways to replace the fact that domestic adoption, uh, the numbers of children available for domestic adoption, um, uh, you know, kind of fell through the 80s and 90s, and by the early 2000s. Uh, you know, international adoption became kind of, uh, you know, an option. And at one stage at its peak, there's about 400 children a year being adopted from internationally into Ireland. So that might not seem very much if you're a big country like America or or the UK, Um, but there's nearly as many international adoptees in Ireland as there is in the UK, I understand. There's about Mm. uh, close to 5,000. Uh, just over 5,000 international adoptions, which I think is actually quite comparable. Um, so per yeah. head of population, it would be much higher. Um, yeah, uh,
2: That is, I mean, it's fascinating because I think that we, like you, like I said, we just sort of presume that adoption is just done. And I think that the, the more you dig around, you realise that sort of culturally, you, you know, Ireland's and Irish people's experience of adoption is just so different. Um, all the same words, just a different order. Yeah. Um, mm. <laughs> And so, how does that then? Sorry, Scott, I've t- totally taken over the interview that you're in, and you and you've sort of, given him a list of questions. I confess, I didn't even read, read the list of questions. So I have no idea what we're meant to talk about. The one time um, I do
0: any preparation, exactly. yeah, exactly. Yeah, the only, the yeah. one time. Yeah, there you go. Actually, I didn't um, even, I am just checking.
2: I didn't send them them. So there you go. Oh, right, that's fine. Um, so that does that mean that the work that you do is. Is there an element of the, the the weight and heaviness around that work? Is that kind of you talked about tracing, which
1: mm.
2: sounds like a really complex work? Is that that is that
1: work that you've done historically? So, can
2: you tell us yeah. a bit about that?
1: Okay, um, yeah, uh, adoption is fascinating. It's fascinating, and, mm-hmm. and I think it's why you know there's this huge feature in lots in literature. You know and um, both both true life stories and and you know kind of fictional literature um uh, you know ad- uh, so certainly kind of in our work in the post-adoption service on both the adults and children's side you know there's there's you know there's loss involved in adoption so there's sadness but the interesting thing about adoption is there's also joy because you know there's a the creation of a family so you know it's 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 interesting that it's that to kind of die that um those two natures and i think that's what makes it interesting uh, in terms of the heaviness i suppose of the family tracing um uh, it's very interesting work because what you're doing is it's, it's kind of almost like detective work into the past you have to get records from you know 40 50 60 70 years ago um, there might be very scarce, scarce records or unreliable information. And then you have to try and project that forward as to what happened to that, that, that mother or that mm. family, um, a, you know, what happened at that time that meant they couldn't look after their child. Often it was just the case that it was out of wedlock. Um, and then se- secondly, what happened to them after that? And obviously in many cases they maybe went on to marry and have further children but this was a secret of the first pregnancy or the first child. Um so you know you might be approaching, you know, a birth mother who's carried the secret a long time or you might be approaching siblings after the birth mother has died um to break the news that they have, you know, an older sibling and this might be when they're in their 70s or 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, um I I have clients in their 90s that I've uh, been involved in reunions with siblings. You know, so it's a, uh, you know, it's fascinating work really interesting
2: i mean i can't Um, imagine how you start that conversation Uh, this the need for sensitivity but also the drive for transparency and kind of to shine a light but yeah yeah
1: (laughs) yeah well that that, that's it as i said uh, you know it's a it's a momentous kind of occasion really the day that that person you know you write your 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 carefully worded letter and you get back uh, uh you know um so that if somebody else picks it up, they don't know the whole family's whole business, but the person who gets it gets enough information that they they can that they're intrigued and they want to call you back. Mm-hmm. So uh, and then explaining the reasons why you're making contact with them and why you know you think there's a possibility that you know your client uh, may be related to them. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, so uh, uh, yeah, so I said it's very interesting and then the mediation work to try and reconnect people and um, once they get past that potential shock now in some cases they might know or they might have been told but they didn't know where to start looking yeah. um you know but uh, uh in many cases in that work in many cases they wouldn't you know if it's a if it's an adoption reunion the adopted person you know in 99 of cases will know that they're adopted and the birth mother will know what this letter is about but it's where you're contacting siblings and that older cohort that maybe they won't know what it's about you know, um. So as I said, that's kind of an extra, an extra, an extra element to it, I suppose. Can I ask one
2: final question on that before I let Scott get a word in, Edwards? Um <clears throat> who funds that?
1: So, uh, the in 1999, the state apologised to the former residents of the industrial schools, who had bravely come forward and shared their stories and their experiences in the kind of 1990s um and they set up a, a number of uh, kind of reparation they set up a, a redress board to pay for some financial compensation they set up a commission to investigate this called the Ryan report um that published its findings in 2010 um which uh, kind of had you know international headlines, I suppose, uh, as it it fully vindicated um, the stories that people had been saying about the abuses that happened. Um, But one of the first things they did was to set up a family tracing service because they felt that it was uh, um, you know I need that didn't need to wait for the rest of the re- legal wranglings around compensation and and so on hmm. that they could set this up immediately and th- there was a need to set it up immediately so um, Bernard was basically was given that a uh, contract uh, by the department of education who, ha- who had the responsibility um, and it's as I said it's maintained it's, it's much smaller service now than it was because uh, as I said it's, it's largely met the needs of that client group um, but uh, it's still being run by bernardo's um, and it would have grown out of the post adoption service which as i said in the 1990s the post adoption service which would have been seen as being quite independent started to get phone calls from people who'd been in the industrial schools who would say i'm not adopted but you know i was in a home how can i search for my family and they would have done what they could to try and help people so I suppose they're in a position then to um you know to to uh, get that contract. And as I said, it's a fully funded service, um, you know, and as I said, it's, it's you know, it's, it's been a, a success, I suppose, over the years, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess it sounds like the state took responsibility for what happened. And,
1: you know, it was kind of just something that they had to provide, I guess. I, th- I think so. In terms of that, as I said, again, you know, some some of the uh, survivor groups may argue differently in terms of the, you know, other services or other parts of that response from the state. Um, but certainly in terms of the family tracing aspect, um, it does, as I said, it, you know, it would appear that they saw this was a the responsibility they had, to, they had to take on. And um, uh, as I said, they've been very supportive of that work, I suppose, uh, over, the, over the last 20 odd years.
0: Because yeah, I guess that's just one element of stuff that they should have done. <laughs> they may not have done the rest of it. So yeah, I guess yeah. I guess that's um, that's only one mm. element. Isn't it? Mm. And I mean, just going back to like your your timeline as well. I mean, it's it sounds very familiar. If it's maybe a slightly different in terms of the domestic adoption rate dropping. Mm. Um, and what struck what struck me when you're talking about that as well. I mean, I I, I don't know. What you know about adoption in the UK and stuff, but certainly, um, they're they're kind of we're moving away from that filling a need for the for for couples who can't have children sure. now, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and you know it's it's about the needs of the child rather than mm. the needs of needs of a couple. And is that the same here? I mean, has that changed over the time here as well? And you know, is it is it like because I'm thinking when you're doing international adoption, yeah. I mean, that's not something that's just provided by the state. Uh, I'm assuming I don't because I'm. That's why we've got you on, so we can find out how it works. (laughs) Certainly, you know, in the UK, in in, in, (laughs) certainly in the UK, international adoption. You know, you would you would be assessed by an agency, and then you know you would go to however it works from there. Um, And we've had um, Satwinder, Winder, Sandu, who's the um, CEO of um, international international adoption center. Yeah, oh, actually, that's it, international adoption center. He's been on a couple of times actually on the podcast, and we've chatted to him. Um, so, I mean, is it the same here? Sorry, I've, I've waffled a bit there, but <laughs> is, is that uh, how it's working? Is that the, how it's yeah, going? Yeah,
1: okay. So, so yeah, uh, I think there's there's a few aspects to the question, um, and I think the, the first one, which is to say, uh, you know, is the child front and center of the process, um, and uh, I I would say that Ireland has certainly moved in that direction um and uh you know i suppose for for your listeners there's two main state bodies that are involved in ireland in adoption in ireland uh, domestic and international and mm-hmm. um, the adoption authority uh that used to be called the adoption board but the adoption authority of ireland is the body that um uh that uh legalized adoptions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, they would have adoption records for every legal adoption that happened in Ireland, going back to 1952. And they also have the Register of International Adoptions. Um, and uh, so I suppose they uh, uh, ratify that an adoption meets the legal, legal standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second agency that would be involved would be TUSLA, which mm-hmm. is the Child and Family Agency. Um, slightly different from other services, but the Child and Family Agency was set up a number of years ago to separate out kind of children's and social services from um the general health and social welfare system. So TUSLA would be responsible for the assessment of adoptive parents. Um and uh, um they're also responsible for information and tracing for adopted people. So I said Bernardo's would have done that for that cohort I talked about, but for right, adoptive yeah, people yeah. at this stage, um the all the independent agencies have closed and their records have been transferred to the state and TUSLA have those records and have the responsibility for kind of information and tracing. Mm-hmm. Um so Tusla have two involvements in adoption for the adult side there and also for yeah. ad- assessing adoptive parents. Um TUSLA would also because they're the child welfare agency they would also have responsibility for fostering and for you know child protection mm-hmm. um so the 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 reason why one of the reasons why the this for the small numbers of domestic adoption in Ireland would have been that um the kind of constitution would have uh, been seen to favor the rights of the family um and really protect the rights of the family and generally, that uh, what one aspect of that would be that a child who was born to uh, uh, um, a married couple uh, wasn't able to be adopted. And that would have been the case, for, kind of brought in the 1952 Adoption Act to be in line with that aspect of the constitution and that would have stayed the same right up until, I can't remember, I think it was possibly 2010, I may be wrong about that, but certainly yeah. into the 2000s <clears throat> um, that, you know, so so a child who might be in the care system, um, even if the parents wished for that child to be adopted, um, you know, it, it, my understanding is it wouldn't have been possible. Right. So the children's referendum that we had, we love a referendum in Ireland, and we had a referendum in, I think it was 2012, um, on the rights of the child, which increased, which um, put the child, the rights of children, front and centre in the Constitution as well. Mm -hmm. And one aspect then is that that then changed the, the, uh, I suppose, both the culture, um, and also the legalities, but also the culture in terms of sitting thinking about children who are in the care system, perhaps getting permanency through adoption mm-hmm. um, in their placements. But as I said, that's only kind of came through really in the last 10 years. Um, and you know, the numbers are, are relatively small. I know that Scott, before we talked to this, you'd kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that aspect mm-hmm. of things. Um, so I, I had to do a little bit of of uh, homework, and the the <laughs> the, 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 um, the the adoption authorities, uh, which has an excellent website, really transparent. Um, their most recent annual report is only twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty two is not out yet, but in twenty twenty one, in Ireland, there was um, a well in a couple of years before. There was an average of about five or six uh, infant adoptions okay yeah. in the whole country about yeah. 60,000 60, babies born 6 of them adopted um there, thereabouts um step parent adoptions in 2021 there were 65 uh, so that would be where you know a step parent would adopt uh, yeah. the child um so again very small numbers yeah. um uh, and from long term foster care there was 24 children adopted uh, mm. in 2021 now. 2021 20, was a year of the pandemic and it's yeah. certainly possible it, that definitely had an impact on international adoption mm. um uh, um but uh there you go there that's that's the numbers so that's you can see that the numbers are pretty small yeah um but obviously really significant for all those families and those children yeah i
0: mean i remember um i just going on the numbers thing well, the, the first involvement that we had with two suckers um we had an instant. we went and Presented ourselves to just, <laughs> before they rang us uh, when we first moved back to Ireland, yeah. um, and um, it was interesting because when we sat in front of the duty social worker, because obviously you know she was responsible for chatting to us to see what our issue was and um when we explained that you know our son was adopted he had FASD and she went oh she went we don't really have very many adoption around these parts she said I think we've had three mm. in the last five years
1: okay yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course having come from the UK and having worked for adoption in UK and been sure. quite involved yeah, yeah, yeah. in it I was yeah, yeah. like three in five years how the yeah. hell could that be so, but it yeah. is it's it's quite it's not it's not a huge thing here is it like
1: no, well, as you know, in terms of you know, in terms of uh, you know, children living mm-hmm. in Ireland, no, it's it, it, it isn't. I mean, you know, um, as I said, but but one uh, kind of stat that I think I I kind of would often sit and say is that you know there are fifty thousand adopted people in Ireland, five thousand extra when you count internationally adopted, but five thousand domestically adopted. You know, mainly adults. Yeah. Uh, Each one of them has, you know, in most cases, uh, you know, an adoptive mother and an adoptive father. Mm -hmm. Um, Each one of them definitely has a birth mother and a birth father. So all of a sudden you're at 250,000 people who are directly affected by adoption. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, and if you add in aunties, uncles on both adoptive sides and, um, uh, you know, birth family sides, Mm -hmm. you know, pretty quickly, most families in Ireland have some connection to adoption. Okay, yeah. um, but at the same time, as I said, for you know, for 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 children, as I said, the, the numbers obviously you know are very small. Mm.
2: Mm. I was trying to do some maths um, with approximate figures, <laughs> and it's just—it seems like in the UK we we would adopt like three, at least three times plus as many for every one child in Ireland. Okay. We would adopt yeah. three; there'd be three adopted. But I'm not okay. sure exactly, including the the like the step parent adoption as well. So it feels like yeah. It, it I mean I think like we said at the beginning it feels like a totally different context and how mm. the public and society feel about adoption is clearly hugely impacted by the catastrophe of you know the industrial schools and the and the the magdalene you know sisters mm. and all of that kind of mm. bleak
1: yes yeah, yeah yeah but there's some truth in that that as I said you know that you know certainly there's a, uh, you know a, Adoption in Ireland generally is associated with, as I said, with shame, secrecy, um, you know, I, it, rather than, as I said, you know, the the 50,000 people who joined family homes instead of industrial schools, um, you know, uh, or, or the 5,000 children, you know, who've been adopted into Ireland who, um, you know, uh, and again, we might talk a little bit about some of the issues for those children, but uh, again, you know, who, who are growing up in, you know, 99.9% of the cases, you know, loving families. Yeah. Um, and as I said, you know, there certainly, uh, um, you know, there certainly should be more space for the happy stories, I suppose. Uh, um, mm. You know, So
2: we feel like we've sort of, we've set the scene. We've got a comprehensive, yeah. the history of adoption in Ireland <laughs> uh, comprehensive there. So tell us a bit about your day job now then, because you're you're a post-adoption support worker, aren't you? That's your... Yeah, just well, we would know, we you know, but anyone who thinks this would go, oh yeah, right, got that. Yeah, man. yeah, but yeah. That context, got that yeah, context is interesting, yeah. isn't it?
1: Yeah, so I'll tell you, you want... a bit about. I suppose I'll tell you a bit about our service, and I don't want it to sound like a you know a, a, you know a, a, an advertising uh, thing for either come and work with Bernardo's or brilliant or um, <laughs> anything like that. Give us like your that, money, you know? or, or <laughs> exactly, or give us your money, or or you know come to us and we'll solve all your problems. You know, I don't want it. To...
0: Well, if you do, then I'll be there tomorrow morning. <laughs> watch watch you,
1: be careful what you say. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, so, no, I, I uh, so I've, I've a really interesting job. I'm the project leader for the children's service. And we have a project leader over the adult service and um, our services expanded massively. And actually, uh, if you don't, if you, if you'll indulge me, I just want to pay tribute to, um, the, the, this was the founders of our service. Um, because one of them, uh, uh, in March last year, retired after 30 years of incredible work to birth mothers, that would be Patricia White. Um, and, uh, this week last year, Christine Hennessy, who would have been, I suppose, my mentor and a uh, you know a, a real uh, standout figure in adoption in Ireland, uh, sadly died suddenly, um, just as she was seeing her dream uh, of the post-adoption service coming to fruition, with uh, a, a, a kind of expanded adult service, expanded children's service, um, with uh, you know, a, a, you know, a geographical spread of Dublin, Cork, and Galway. Um, You know, uh, and as I said, uh, I just wanted to kind of pay tribute to all of her work, uh, this week especially. So um, uh, I would have been working with Christine for 15 years, uh, and I would have then taken over the the kind of project leader position. Um, And I have a fantastic team of uh, children's therapists, play therapists, art therapists, uh, social workers. All working as project workers, which is Bernardo's uh, um, uh, title. But uh, as I said, with you know great and varied experience, I suppose. Um, and we work with uh, on the children's side. We would work with adoptive families, um, domestic or international. But as you can see, the the, the numbers are very much um, uh, the international adoptees. Lots of teenagers, because again, the bulk of you know the numbers of international yeah. adoptions were highest in the early two thousands, which are kind of coming of age now. Um, and on Children's Aid, we also do work with uh, kind of 19, 20, 21 year olds as well um, uh, because we kind of feel that you know a 19 year old who was adopted from China probably has more in common with a 17 year old adopted from China than they would a 55 year old adopted in Ireland, I suppose. Uh, and as I said, we offer kind of individual uh, support to families. We have a helpline um, we're very accessible. We have, uh, uh, in our three centres, we would do individual work with children um, and families. Um, we This would be similar to some ways to UK in that we went to the UK when we started Children's Service and we went to Family Futures in London and uh, some of the, the post-adoption centre in London. Um, and we would have you know seen what they were doing. Uh, and we would have got some of the same trainings, you know, in DDP, therapy and um, sensory attachment integration and intervention, which is now being kind of rolled out across Bernardo's actually. Uh, so, as I said, w- you know, we would have kind of taken all these trainings on. We would have had organised a few conferences with, to get people like Dan Hughes over and uh, Holly Van Gulden and, um, you know, uh, some of these kind of international speakers. Louise Baumer, an excellent trainer for teachers. Uh, And um, I suppose would have gradually built up a reputation as being trauma informed, uh, attachment focused and, um, you know, as I said, I suppose on on the side of adoptive families really, you know, Mm. Um, and and using our experience of working for, you know, 30 odd years doing groups with adopted adults and with birth mothers to kind of inform the, uh, inform our understanding of working with children and teenagers around identity. Um yeah. because, you know, uh, the adopted adults work, you know, when people are able to sit and look back on what it was like to be a teenager, there's a lot of learning for that for us to mm. then hopefully use in our work with teenagers.
2: It, I was reflecting on, I mean, is it? it's a national service, isn't it? So that makes it, is it? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it, it is. So and so you, you, saw,
1: you saw my base and I suppose the difficulty with it, with, we are a national service and, and Tusla Fund our service. They fund our service again, one hundred percent, and uh, they they've been very supportive of our service in terms of expanding. Um, and uh, we do try to cover the whole country. However, we only have three offices, and uh, you know, uh, um, I wish I could say hand on heart that we do cover the whole country, but we do our best. And so as I think, on online work certainly has allowed us to do that, yeah. uh, and we do have flexibility. So as I said, um, but we are a relatively you know, we still are a relatively small service. You know, we have, I think we have the equivalent of about eight or nine full-time people um, on our children's team. Uh, so obviously we do refer to, we do refer people to kind of other statutory services and to private services as well. Maybe especially if, if they're not, uh, if they're not easily accessible to to where we are.
2: Because Ireland, I mean, I'm not Irish and uh, but I've visited a few times. But what sort of struck me as a visitor was that how rural it is and how, um, it, there's a not a lot. Not a lot of people live there, so it it yeah. feels very spaced out. And yeah. so there's a lot. There's there's places in Ireland that are quite a long way away from <laughs> Dublin. They and are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are. Because I think you, the temptation is like in an English. view Looking at the map, you go, "Oh, it's, it's quite small, isn't it?" But it yeah, doesn't feel like that, does it? It feels like it. There's lots of hidden corners. And yeah, I, I think the, the reason I asked if it was a national service was because I thought what was peculiar, and Scott, you might be able to confirm this for me, is that. We have in the UK the service that we have post adoption support isn't open to international adopted children, mm-hmm. is it? Mm-hmm. There's no yeah. statutory um, mm-hmm. uh, right. So if you adopted from whatever China, Cuba, whatever, you were on your own really. And I think that again seems really. It just seems well it makes perfect sense. Well, children, I it, children.
0: I, I think in the UK it depends on on the agency, doesn't it? I mean, you know, there's. Um, in, in each local authority, they have a responsibility in, in the UK, whereas here that responsibility isn't held by the local authority um, because it's a service that's kind of commissioned, I guess, um, from the Children and Young People's Service, if you like. Um, but I th- I do, because I, I know that things like, was it, I think it was Pupil Premium Plus in the UK that you could apply for if your child was adopted, I think, um, mm. in school. I think at, some, at one stage, I, I, oh, I we'll can't remember if it's yeah I know Work it out but, won't we but um definitely you know if you had in, if you'd adopted from abroad you you couldn't, I you see, couldn't so get that so, okay yeah so there was there was a few kind of differences mm. and I know that you know Al and I are both on the adopter reference group which is the department for Education's kind of I don't know what you'd call it it's like a you know a lot a lot of adopters turn up they do have one for special guardianships to do one for, you know all that sort of stuff and you know that that was a really big focus of of mm. ours a couple of years back when you know we we noticed there was you know there was a difference in that so
1: yeah. um yeah and- I, I think in terms of international adoption um i i think that to be fair to the irish different state bodies there is a sense that you know these, these children are irish citizens mm. you know as soon as they be, as soon as they um as soon as they are adopted they are Irish citizens yeah. and um you know the, the as i said our services I suppose as a specialist service kind of mm. for for them uh, um and as i said uh, uh, you know, funded by the state um because you know it was gradually recognized that this was a group of children who did have some specialized needs um mm. you know who who uh, you know, would be referred to, you know, child and adolescent mental health services, which should be kind of um, statutory services. Um they'd be referred to them at the rate of, you know, 18%, which I think is about four four times the average um you know population. Mm-hmm. Uh, um and then some of those issues, you know, it might be that there's significant kind of um you know uh, whether it's developmental trauma or or some other kind of mental health issue there. Um, but some of those issues were also, you know, linked perhaps to identity or linked to, um, you know, a, a kind of early attachment stuff. So, as I said, you know, there's been, a, I suppose, a, a recognition of that and a shift to that to, to try and help mm. support our, you know, relatively small service to help this, you know, cohort yep. of, of children.
0: Yeah. And I mean we have to bear in mind cuz we're talking about the size of the country, you know, the population of Ireland is similar to the population of Scotland. Manchester. Okay. Or yeah. Scotland, yeah. Um okay. and you look at the geography of Scotland and how big, mm. you know, how how rural some of that is. Um but you think that every local authority in Scotland has responsibility for post adoption services.
1: Okay.
0: Um so you're doing it with just nine people for the whole country and mm. you know that's that's not a that's not a small task. But if you compare the numbers, in terms of numbers that have been adopted, I guess it's, it's relative, really, isn't it, in some way? Mm,
1: I, I don't know. I, 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 yeah. Despite
0: despite the accent, I, I couldn't tell you about Scotland. <laughs> oh, could you not? <laughs> oh, I could tell you all day about that. Don't worry about that. <laughs> but, you sound more Scottish than I do, and I've been... Yeah, we've probably been away the same time, actually. Yeah, yeah I,
1: I, um, I, get, I get accused of... Being, people, some people think I'm from the north because I have that many Irish phrases. You know, <laughs> a, a slight hybrid accent, I think, sometimes.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, you're fine. Accents are accents right I'm just looking at my questions here so um and and in terms of so because I'm on your mailing list uh, as in Bernardo's mailing list for um uh post adoption I've never used it because you're right you know in terms of some of the stuff that's done face to face it would be you know it's less in the kind of I want to say the country where I live because I mm. don't live anywhere near Dublin. I, okay. I live close to Galway, nowhere near Cork. Okay. Um, but in terms of stuff that's available, it's it's uh, you know it's, it is mostly online. But what 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 does the adoption support look like that you offer for the children, young people, and their families? And you know, I, I just want to see if we can if we can compare it to
1: the issues okay. in the UK in terms mm. of adoption support. So do you mean the the issues that we might be trying to help people with? Or how do we help to to help with, or both, I suppose? Both, I suppose, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, okay. So um, we we work with children from, as I said, uh, not quite, we wouldn't work with many babies, um, Mm -hmm. but we we have had a few, you know, three-year-olds walk in the door. Mm -hmm. Um, We would work with a lot of, uh, a, a very common referral age would be around about the age of eight. Right. Um I, I, and again, you know, some of your expert listeners might understand why that around the age of eight is the stage when the kind of penny drops about adoption and adaptive grieving. Um it's also for children who've maybe had early trauma, it's also the kind of stage where in school the difference between them and their peers is starting to become more obvious. That you know, in when they're, you know, in, in junior infants, which is you know, the five-year-olds, uh, you know, there might be lots of kids who aren't very good at taking turns. There might be lots of kids who you know are very sensitive to correction, um, struggle, struggle with separation, that kind of thing. By the time you get to eight, most of the class can manage that, but maybe some of the families that we would see yeah. would still struggle with those issues. Again, linked to the kind of insecurity that comes from, um, you know, uh being in an orphanage uh, or, or children's home um, with limited carers for the first kind of year, two years of your life, mm. um, which would be the history of a lot of the kids that we would work with. um. So I suppose, you know, with those eight-year-olds, the, the, the kind of work that we would do um, would be a lot of parenting work to help the parents understand how normal this behaviour was, given the uh, circumstances of the, the child's early years. um, uh you know, and uh, we would do. Uh, we would often use therapy, which is a, a kind of directive type of play therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, uh, we would just. There would quite often be sensory issues. We don't have an OT on our team. A lot of the children would have maybe had some private OT or maybe some state state. Uh, funded OT, um, but we don't have an OT on our team, but we would use a lot of, we've done sensory attachment intervention, which is a kind of OT developed um, program. um, And that would involve, you know, an element of, uh, as I said, you know, a kind of, uh, you know, deep pressure. And uh, also, I suppose, some parts work, some projects about trying to help a child uh, identify their parts, maybe even touching on where that might have came from in terms of, you know, their adoption, their birth family, the ways that they're like their parents and the ways that maybe if they're unlike their parents, maybe that's a way that they're like their birth parents, you know, that some Mm. of those talents might be be come from their birth parents or whatever. but, uh, and then I suppose the, the kind of next key age might be just, uh, changing school, starting secondary school, which in Ireland would happen usually around about the age of 12. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a stage where for adopted kids, they might start to be asked questions again, especially internationally and transracially adopted kids. Mm. So they might have got through the kind of eight, nine year old stage where they're being asked lots of questions about their adoption. And they're kind of an object of curiosity. Um, you know then by the time uh, they're 11 or 12 they're having to face that again because they're going to be meeting a whole new group of people and they might be starting to feel as most teenagers do they don't want to stand out they don't want to feel different yeah and in this and in this way they are different so um you know we might be trying to help prepare them or support them around you know managing friendships um uh, and so on and then i suppose into the teenage years um, again lots of identity work lots of, um, normalizing, um, as well, I suppose, is just some, um, you know, kind of self, you know, self-esteem work and, uh, you know, managing anxiety. lot well, of children would be carrying a huge amount of anxiety, even into their teens. And then you know, that can come out with the pressures of exams, the pressures of, you know, first love, the pressures of uh, peer relationships and so on. Um, so, uh, you know, um, Uh, And obviously that can come out in all all kind of manners of kind of risk-taking behaviour and so on as well uh, that can be very difficult for parents to manage. So I suppose as well, all the way through, we're doing a lot of kind of parent coaching um, as well. Um, uh, Yeah, so hopefully that covers a lot of what we do. The other other thing I suppose we would do, so that's the individual work, the other thing we would do a lot of would be group work. So again, maybe I can talk a wee bit more about that as well. Well,
0: I was just going to say that sounds very i don't want to say very different because actually i'm sure there are some agencies that offer that in the uk but as a as a kind of package of support that actually sounds quite well thought through compared to maybe some places where it would just be like okay let's we don't know what we want to do we don't know how to do that you know that kind of way so it, it does sound it, i don't know do you think that Al, or or is it just me talking well
2: i just was i was running because i thought I, every bit of it, we all get the same landmarks and the same touchstones. But I just thought running it as a national service for such a small cohort of children, it kind of it gives you a gives you a bigger picture that. And
1: yeah, the, I, I, uh, I I I've grown up with these families, mm-hmm. you know, because as I said when I, we started this work in two thousand and eight, you know, many of them, you know, they were young kids then, uh, and now they're older teenagers, many of them. So I've yeah. seen them. And again, I've seen them, you know, come to me when they're eight and having those issues and then coming back when they're changing school and so on. So I suppose the advantage of of our longevity, really. Yeah.
2: But as you're talking, I'm kind of putting in context, you know, the, the fact around, you know, that high level of international adoptions Mm -hmm. in the early two thousands, that the tiny number of children who were being adopted, which sounds like a really good, or for all the right reasons, a tiny number. In 10 years time, you're not going to have a job. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah the only thing is uh, uh, informa- informa- information and tracing um, and that also <laughs> there also is the chance uh, and I do think this will happen that there will be an increasing number of children who are adopted from the foster care system mm. so uh, you know that right. is a, that is, a, a, I suppose a, a priority for TUSLA to start to try and look at that more as an option for permanency for children um, and uh, something that they're working towards. Uh, wow. So we have some involvement in that stage, but because that's pre-adoption, yeah. um, you know, it's not fair for a post-adoption service to be involved with a child who, whose adoption might be two, three years away by the time all the legalities go through. So, um, um, but we can advise those parents, I suppose. And then as soon as they are, as soon as the adoption does go through, um, we can be there to try to support them. But unlike in the UK, uh, where you know a, a suite of, uh, as I said, a fund I suppose follows you um, post adoption. For 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 you know there isn't a similar fund uh, you know yeah. in Ireland. Um, uh, you know for for parents I suppose. But it just it, I mean I'm I'm
2: sort of slightly off the the specifics of your day job, But I thought if I, if we had if there was a fourth person in this interview, someone who's an an adoptee rights mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sort of campaigner yeah they would be sitting here going no what you're doing now is really good don't you don't need more adoptions and it, and it seems like that there'd be a whole there's a whole group of people who'd be going no we need to you know if you've got a model of permanence mm. that isn't adoption and all you know all that removal of um all that sort of severing of mm-hmm. legal mm-hmm. ties and mm-hmm. several of his uh, severance of history of history
1: yeah absolutely
2: yeah. so that I, just I, feels I, like it's yeah. swimming against is that against the tide or is that What's informing that decision?
1: Um, well, well, I suppose there isn't permanency in some in some in the situations where they're looking at foster care, um, moving into an adoption placement. You know that can only be considered. There's a, a very strict criteria where that can be considered. And as I said, this isn't my area of expertise, mm-hmm. but that's my understanding. Is, is, well, uh, you, uh, you, know,
2: you could tell us anything, and we'll believe you. <laughs> just lean into it. Yeah, it's just yeah, a few moment.
1: You. <laughs> but the the you know there is there is a strict set of criteria for Tusla uh, in terms of considering this mm. and there's a lot of kind of checks and balances I suppose um, you know um, but again absolutely and as I said you know our service grew out of providing a service to adopted adults who uh, you know many of as I said whom you know would have you know had to campaign for adoption rights which again you know another yeah. part of Ireland's adoption story is that, that 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 kind of only happened really last year in terms of rights of access to information so um uh yeah i mean absolutely again and and we also work with birth mothers who again would be very sensitive to the idea you know that we we're also working with adopted children because mm. that, those adopted children have a birth mother somewhere out there even yeah. if it's the other side of the world yeah um, so as that, I said, so so um, I think we're you know we're in a, a lucky position in that we work with post adoption. So we we work with whichever families or whichever individuals mm-hmm. on any side of those tri- the triangle and kind of mm-hmm. need some assistance.
0: But that leads us very nicely into contact. What do, I mean, what does contact look like if there is such a thing? You know, obviously in the UK we've got these things. With names that are very old-fashioned, that like letterbox, direct contact, etc. Um, and I think we're, you know, we're we're very conscious. Al and I are very conscious enemy anyway of that umbrella term for contact, um, and kind of trying to yeah. change that. But what does it look
1: like, for a, you know, for an adopted young person okay. living in Ireland? Okay. So I suppose for in domestic adoption, um, many of them would be the small numbers that there have are, but the small numbers, you know, there are, you know there there are probably a couple of hundred uh, at least uh, domestically adopted children under age of 18. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, those, uh, many of them would be open adoptions, so they would all involve some form of letterbox contact, exchange of photographs, um, Mm -hmm. visitations in some cases, okay, Um, uh, because that would have happened I suppose in a planned way at the time of the adoption, Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, and the birth mothers, you know, uh, wishes, I suppose, would have been taken into consideration as well, and so on. The 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 uh, an international adoption is obviously entirely different because it's very different depending on which country. Um, so again, um, there are a number of adopted children adopted internationally from America, mm-hmm. and that may be very different from international adopted children adopted from China or Russia or Vietnam or yeah, Ethiopia. You know. So the the context is really different in different countries. Um, And in this case, the information that a family might have to share with their child might be vastly different. So in some cases, they might have huge amounts of information, which means it is possible for the child maybe themselves to trace as a teenager, uh, you know, uh, uh, online, um, you know, to trace, or there may be very little information available. Um, and parents might be in a position where they're having to kind of get try and find a, a you know a mediator or a private detective or somebody like that in in the country of origin to try to um, you know get more information um, and search uh, and as i said and as this cohort of children are becoming adults um, you know obviously many of them are going to want to search for more information or search for birth family uh, and um, uh, the adoption authority uh, this is a slight plug for the, for the Adoption Authority, they're doing a study at the moment, um, focus groups and individual interviews with young intercountry adopted adults to try to figure out what kind of services they need as adults, including information and tracing, um, which they're, they're looking at, because at the moment there isn't any, as I said, uh, you know, a domestically adopted adult has the right to go back to now Tusla um, yeah. and get uh, their their early life history and their birth information, um, and the right to ask Tusla to, to try to mediate contact with birth family, uh, to trace the birth family and make, mediate contact with them. And there's a contact register that they can also sign up to do that. Uh, you know, the, um, there's nothing to stop an adult, adop- an internationally adopted adult, doing the same, but Tusla aren't going to have much information. Yeah, for starters. And um, uh, as I said, at the moment, as I said, you know that's not included in terms of you know any state agency searching in russia or searching in china or searching in ethiopia for birth family so it's, it's kind of up to the parents and the individual themselves to find somebody in the country who will do that for them
0: yeah it's interesting because that that um, adoption authority stuff you just talked about i got an email from somebody about that the other day i think he was called andrew walker from a, that, that was me was... yeah yeah, and, yeah yeah yeah. and um yeah so i was actually going to share it but i, I I think that came through this morning actually or yesterday so um, but we will we'll we'll attach it to this as well just in case anybody's interested and uh, yeah
1: I I think it's really important because as as I said our service started in 2008 on the children's side Mm -hmm. and so there's a cohort of slightly older would have been children then yeah um, who are now adults in their late 20s 30s and we've never really had contact with them and it would be them who i would love to have contact with because they might really inform us because they can look back and it may be really helpful for us to have that perspective in terms of the you know 14 15 year olds that we have now or the 6 year olds because as i said there is still um, a small number of of international adoption each year i think uh, the, as i said the average was about what did they say the average was about 40 40 per year for the last yeah. couple of years up to 20 up to 2021 um uh, and, and a significant proportion of them would come to our service because you know the, the, we are now national they know about us so you know they might come may not have to come to us all the time but they might come to us uh, I suppose when they need a little bit of extra advice
0: yeah yeah and so then just going back a step I guess um when we were talking about um the kind of p- p- potential discussion around changing um adoption what what is the long term? Kind of options at the moment in terms of where children are. I mean, we've obviously got foster care, which is similar to the UK. Um, I mean, I get—I have in my head residential um, is quite big thing over here in Ireland. I mean, is it? Is that is that?
1: I'm not sure. True or is it? I'm not sure. I, I worked in residential care uh, when I first came to Ireland for for hmm. four years, um, and uh, at that time, the 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 rates were very similar to the UK. So the rates of numbers of children in care. Um, and the rates of numbers of children that were in residential care compared to you know foster care, for example, mm. were pretty similar to the UK actually. Um, uh, you know, historically, when you go back to the industrial schools, the Madeline laundries, the mother and baby home, again, you know, Ireland Ireland had uh, had a huge number of people who were in you know uh, care facilities. Um, yeah. But again, it, it, I, I I couldn't tell you now what the balance <laughs> is and certainly yeah. certainly i do remember learning that when i first came over that the numbers are relatively similar mm-hmm. um uh yeah yeah andrew you have
2: been a fantastically interesting guest i would love to sit and have a pint with you because i feel like we could probably <laughs> just put, go put on, the world on to for rates. hours yeah, put the world put to the world right. the world so. rights and another thing um, and <laughs> and <laughs> um, we've taken up loads of time and i really appreciate that we've sort of probably taken you outside of. Um, your, mm. your your specific field where you know your expertise, and I really appreciate the time you've taken to kind of read up around that stuff. Because, but I think it's fascinating to just to not just presume that other countries are just on the same track. You know, when we talk about adoption, we're so. Mm. And I think I see this online when you see different people from different nations. We're talking about the same thing, but we've got we're talking about a different thing. Same words, oh, yeah. different meaning. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time and energy. And um, we'll put links to all the stuff that you're doing so people can look into then If we've got any people in Ireland who yeah. want to kind of connect into you, they can do that. And if people in England, I suppose, can absolutely yeah <laughs> come yeah over I, 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 the I, holidays well, and get some help.
1: Well, one one interesting aspect of our adult side, which again I've only kind of touched on, um, but our adult service uh, um, because of the online. Uh, we do have Irish people who live overseas who come to groups oh, Wow. fellow Irish adoptees because, again, they might go to an adopted support group in England or whatever, but, again, the context is a bit different and, actually, mm. they get something out of coming to to it. So, uh, yeah, so, as I said, so, so you know, we do have a, a very small international uh, client group as well. Um, I suppose just to to say, and I know uh, that you put out a similar disclaimer, but just to sit and say that, uh, as I said, you know, uh, well, while um I'm talking about my work with Bernardo's and different parts of my work with Bernardo's um that uh you know all views are my my own I suppose.
2: There's <laughs> <laughs> a man yeah. who's feared for his job. <clears throat> there you
1: go. That's it exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I That's mean right. on a
2: totally different note. So are you uh, you're you're registered as an Irish social worker or did you qualify as an Irish social worker?
1: No, no I'm not a social worker. Um what? so you know, my background is psychology. Yeah, ah, why did psychology. I think you were a
0: social worker?
1: Yeah, no, the, the, as I said it was originally a social work service Um. Uh-huh. but I suppose when we branched out into the kind of therapeutic realm not to say social workers aren't therapeutic and we do have a number of social workers on a team who are... Oh, we're know, not Yeah. I don't know I see the difference in the team, as I said, between those with a social work kind of background and those with a very therapeutic background and hmm. they both have to work kind of in the middle and, you know, the social workers have to work more as a therapist and mm. the, the therapists have to work uh, to some degree as a kind of a case manager as well, uh, helping the family. So,
2: yeah. Well, that's one for the I, pub, I, isn't it? Well,
1: it definitely is because, you
0: know, I, well, you may or not know, Andrew, I mean, you know, post-adoption support for adults in the UK it looks very different. You know, that would not... Yeah yeah we wouldn't we wouldn't be allowing that
1: to happen now as they say you know <laughs> yeah. yeah and as I said and, and okay. to the trace information and tracing is all social workers so mm. the kind of information and tracing is seen as a social work role the, the I suppose the the origins work that I mentioned industrial school family tracing was a wider uh, remit because obviously those that client group had a particular set of needs um yeah. uh you know often involving kind of counselling Mm-hmm. So um, even though we weren't delivering counselling, I suppose that was why it was a slightly wider remit when they were looking for people to do that work, mm-hmm. um, which is oh. what brought me to Bernardo's. Yeah,
2: it's fascinating, and I, I feel quite pleased with myself to be honest with you, uh, because I at no point have I mentioned carrots. Bernardo's carrots? No, lost me, I'm afraid. Well. That's you sacked when you get in in
1: the morning, isn't it?
2: Because that's the origin story of the Bernardo's charity, isn't it? Carrots, you know. Oh,
1: and and the see that's been the UK. So Bernardo's Ireland, despite the fact that Doctor Bernardo's uh, was from Dublin, um, uh, Bernardo's only came to Ireland, I think, in the Uh, sixties. That's no excuse for not knowing knowing my history. No, no, right. (laughs) But you need to go and
2: Google. If you Google Dr. Bernardo and carrots, uh, you'll, yeah. you'll get it. I learned that at school. I don't know why I learned that at school. I, anyway. I
0: never heard it. I've, I've, I think you mentioned it to me once before as well. And I drew a blank as well because I didn't know anything
2: about it either. Right. Well, I'm going to put them. a link in the podcast show notes to Dr. <laughs> Bernardo. <laughs> it's it's true Bernard, okay.
1: You'll be educating all of Bernardo's in Ireland. <laughs> so, uh... <laughs>
0: <laughs> to be fair, Bernardo's is such a massive organization all over, like not just yeah. in Ireland, not just in yeah, the UK. Yeah. And they have hundreds and hundreds of people working for them in various different kind of.
2: Pharmacies. And every time I meet yeah. one, I say, what about carrots? And they all look at me like I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's because you're an idiot. But whatever. Never. Yeah. Suddenly the penny dropped. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, we're off point. And yeah, we, we're off. And Andrew, so much. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, really you. appreciate great. and um, yeah. putting up with
1: this, you know, <laughs> basically. No to bother, writing, guys. I was- uh, <laughs> as I said, uh, thank you for, uh, I suppose, the interest in our service and adoption in Ireland, and you know, through that, our clients. You know, as I said, um, uh, you know, it's it's a great job I have. Um, so it's young to the not so young, and uh, as I said, it's it's uh, a privilege, I suppose, to 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 you know have people share their experiences with us. Um, so hopefully. I've reflected a little bit that onto you guys today. Yeah. Thank Thank you. you. Much appreciated. Bye bye. Bye.